passage to the book of Acts, chapter 8. As we step into the 8th chapter of Acts, we are going to begin a multi-week series entitled Anti-Fragility in an Age of Adversity. And I want to break down this phrase for a moment so that we're all on the same page. When I talk about adversity, in this passage, in Acts chapter 8, that adversity has a very specific flavor, that being persecution. So we're going to talk about, for the next few weeks, persecution. Somebody came up to me earlier this morning and said, what are we going to talk about this morning? And I said, persecution. Last week it was death, this week it's persecution. The good times just keep rolling on. But when we talk about persecution over the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to try to make sure that we always remember that persecution is just one of varied flavors of suffering or adversity that a Christian will experience throughout his lifetime. I'm going to make the case next week for why I believe, according to this passage, using Acts 8, 1 through 3 as our guide, I'm going to make the case next week for why I believe persecution is on the rise in our particular country and context. And hopefully, I'll make that case well, and hopefully, I'm wrong. If I turn out to be wrong, then our study of persecution needs to be broad enough so that we think of persecution as just another example of hardships that the Christian will encounter, and all of the promises of God that apply to suffering in general apply to persecution and vice versa. In other words, let's keep the big picture on adversity, even as we talk about a particular kind of adversity, persecution. Now, what about this word at the beginning that I had to teach my computer not to reject? I had to teach my spell check that that word was okay. Well, the term anti-fragile comes from a mathematician an all-around polemicist named uh, Nassim Taleb. And he wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. And I read that book and felt so frustrated as I turned each page that he was not seeing how incredibly anti-fragile the church is. But let me, let me explain what he means by anti-fragile. He says this, anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks, stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. So we're not talking about, when we say anti-fragile, we're not talking about something that's merely strong. That would just be something that is resilient. We're talking about something that responds to adversity with growth. So to be anti-fragile in a mythological sense is to be the hydra. Remember the hydra? We've talked about the hydra before. The hydra, you cut off one head and two emerge. That's an example, a mythological example of anti-fragility. And I believe, as I read God's word, there is no greater example of anti-fragility than the church of Jesus Christ. And so today we begin talking about these two things. First and foremost, the notion that adversity comes and it may be coming in a unique way for us in the form of increased persecution, perhaps. But whatever comes our way, we have this promise disclosed almost on every page, both of the scriptures and church history, that Christians uniquely respond to the stressors of adversity in anti-fragile ways. I mean, that's kind of the promise of Romans 8.28, right? That all things work together, not simply so that the Christian may endure hardships, but that all things work together for the good, for the positive net gain 
of those who are called according to his purposes. Think about it this way. When Paul says, when I am weak, I am strong, he's not saying, here's an idea. Let's do our best when we are weak to get stronger. No, he's just stating an essential fact of the Christian life. That when we are weak, when we are pressed down, when we are made small, when we decrease, the Lord increases and his strength is made known. And we have this incredibly unusual, as far as the world goes, hydra-like response to difficulty. I probably don't want to think of yourself as a hydra, but I don't know what else to say. I guess I could say your Christians are a lot like muscles with repeated stress, repeated growth. And that's what we find in the book of Acts in general, and in particular in our text today in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, which I'll read now. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now let me give you, in this text, uh, four markers of persecution that seem to show up in this text. And be, you'll begin to see, perhaps leaking through as I give you these markers, uh, why I might believe that persecution is on the increase in our country. So there seem to be four markers in this text of persecution. And it's good for us to know what these look like. And we'll talk more about this next week, why it's good for us to know what these look like. But the first marker is this, satanic slack. What do I mean by satanic slack? What I mean is, is that in various points in history, God always has the devil on a chain. The devil cannot act without God's permission to act. And, and, and the, the imagery of a nasty, mean dog on a short leash is, is appropriate as we think about the devil. Yet sometimes, throughout history, God allows Satan to have more slack in his leash than in other times. And when this slack occurs, we can be sure that more times than not, persecution will arise. So at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, this idea that great persecution against the church arose is Satan has been given by his master, the God of the universe, permission, some reason or another, according to the infinite wisdom of God, Satan has been given extra slack in his leash. And he uses that slack to persecute the church. Number two, the second evidence of persecution we see in this text is scattered saints. That, 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 that refers to the idea, as it's expressed in our text, as they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the second marker of persecution is that some effort to, to disconnect the saints from one another, to scatter them from their community, because our community is, is this incredible, source of, of, of from God. So the second marker is uh, scattered saints. The third marker is stoned Stephens. 
And, uh, and the idea there is simply, as it says in verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great, made great lamentation for the, over him. Another marker of persecution is that in some way or another, Satan's hostility to the church expresses itself in burying the servants of God underneath accusation, cancel culture, whatever have you. And the final is stormed sanctuaries. Now, what do I mean by stormed sanctuaries? Well, the text says that Paul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We must remember that the believers at this point were gathering in homes for worship. And so that this text most likely refers to Saul's effort to find Christians assembled in gathering and drag them off to prison. So these four markers seem to be, in our text, just sort of clear representations of the the effects of persecution. Satan is given more freedom to wage war on the saints. The saints are scattered away from their, their, their kind of assembled norms. Some of the leaders of the movement are stoned, either figuratively or literally. And the sanctuaries, the places where people gather, begin to be stormed by outside uh, antagonistic enemies. So maybe some of you can see why I think, yeah, maybe we're creeping up into this uh, this new stage of persecution. But we'll talk way more about that next week. What I want you to see this week is that all of this is quite painful. This is okay, and we ought not surrender to any one step of this. We ought to not welcome this sort of persecution into our lives, because this sort of persecution in our lives is really, really painful. In fact, each one of these... Is, is more than enough to kill a local church. Like just one of these is more than enough to kill a local church. Each one of these is a mortal wound. You know, if God takes down a leader, that's enough to kill a church. If God scatters the saints, that's enough to kill a church. If, if God, if, if, if Satan does these things, sorry, says God, if, if Satan allows or causes authorities to come in and break up an assembly, that's more than enough. The threat of these things is more than enough to kill the church. So persecution is serious and it's painful. And all of these things have the potential, more than the potential, all of these things should, in our own power, destroy a local church. Think a minute about all the painful words in our passage. Thrown outside the city, ravaged, dragged, buried, imprisoned. Nobody in their right mind would welcome this painful kind of persecution. You know, we're not called as Christians to be Buddhists or Stoics in relationship to pain. We're not, we're not called to, to, to be Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse who famously said, pain don't hurt. That's just not the right response. The, the right response is to say, yeah, this is hard. And in fact, not only is it hard, if God doesn't intervene, these things will kill us. No movement, no movement 
could endure these disruptions apart from the power of God. But what we're seeing here is sort of an anti-fragility on display. All of these words I just said, thrown outside the city, ravaged, dragged, buried, these were all first applied to Jesus. It's amazing to me to think that all of these words applied to Jesus, but that our gospel says that Jesus turned the gruesome cross into glory and joy. He, Jesus, the saints with anti-fragile power, not only to endure these hardships, but to experience these hardships and excel as a result of them. This is incredible. But maybe it isn't that incredible when you realize, well, that's Jesus. When he came to this, suffered, was crucified, dead, buried, and was raised to life, raised to life, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The whole story of the gospel is a story of anti-fragility. During, but overcoming. And this anti-fragility that Jesus displayed is his gift. He has given us this very same capacity. He is at work within us to make this anti-fragile power true in our lives. So look back at the text. Satan's efforts to scatter the saints. How did that work out? Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Satan's increased slack, his, 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 his increased freedom to persecute the church. How did that work out? Well, look at verse 5. Philip down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. How, how, how did it work out for the devil to persecute the local church in Jerusalem? How did it work out to scatter the saints? Well, you scatter the saints and they go about preaching the word of God in every city. You go head on and you attack the saints. And what happens? Saints counterattack and many unclean spirits are removed from the city of Samaria and from the people. Look at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of, listen to this, this man is the power of God that is called great. Satan's got quite a little racket going on in Samaria. A number of people are possessed, and there's this man named Simon, who is essentially a practitioner of the occult, the real occult, and he is displaying power to such a degree that the people of Samaria are worshiping him as the God above. 
And guess what? If the devil had left those dumb believers in Jerusalem alone, they would never have made their way to Samaria, or at least not right away. But in upsetting, in scattering the saints, in waging war on the saints, he sends them into Samaria, and now strongholds are falling down, and even this man Simon, who was essentially a false god worshipped by the Samaritans, is killed? No. That would be too easy. Quieted? No. Sent away? No. This man who was worshipped as the god among the gods was redeemed by the Lord of Lords. <laughs> That's anti-fragility. You want to mess with us? Mess with us. This is what's going to happen. You will confuse us. You will confound us. You will hurt us. You will make us sad. You will cause us in the short term to despair. And then after we get up and wipe off our face, we keep walking into the darkness and you will not be glad with us to begin with. Because overcoming power, we can only do one thing in the face of adversity. Grow! Satan's efforts to stone Stephen backfire as well. So Stephen is pictured as we've worked our way through Acts, as the servant of the Greek-speaking widows. And even as he is being struck down, even as his body is about to pass and his spirit is about to join Jesus, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And somehow, in some way, this fervent prayer of a righteous man availed much. And after he is dead and gone, a man named Saul, present witness, enabler of this execution, approver of this execution, will be on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians. Oh, by the way, there are Christians in Damascus now. How did that happen? On his way to Damascus, the Lord intervenes, and does he strike him down and kill him? No. Does he send him away? No. That's not good enough. He redeems him. And so this prayer of a suffering, dying Stephen, in some way, in God's unusual, asymmetrical providences, connects to the conversion of Saul into Paul, who would be the world-changing evangelist to the Gentiles. And Satan's work at storming the same well, all they wind up doing is creating more sanctuaries and fulfilling God's goal to cover the earth with the knowledge of His glory like the waters cover the sea. So, this is really an introductory sermon simply to say that when adversity strikes the church, we should be wise to recognize it and we should brace ourselves because it's going to hurt. But we should do so with confidence that for the Christian and for his true church, only one outcome is possible. And that is that we will be more than conquerors through the power 
of Christ. So these chapters that we'll explore over the next several weeks will be all about the interplay between the adversity that comes and the anti-fragility that manifests. Because, why? Because we're awesome? No. Because we are what we are. People who have been filled with the indomitable power of Jesus. Not any credit to ourselves. In fact, this is where I want to end this message. This is how I want to apply this. You probably don't believe this about you, and I probably don't believe this about me. And that's the whole point of today. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. I was reading through Proverbs 31 again this week, trying to give my wife pointers. No, no. as you know, I, I read that, as many of you know, I read that chapter as, yes, a guide for biblical femininity, but more than that, a guide for what the bride of Christ is meant to be about. Because that's the bride fit for the king. And I got to, to, to verse uh, 25, or 21 rather, and it says of this bride fit for a king, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. Clothing. What are you clothed in? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're clothed in the strength and the dignity of the Son of God, the Most High, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, the perfect servant, the perfect human the image of the invisible God. What are you clothed in? You're clothed in Christ. You're clothed in all the strength and dignity that exists. You're clothed in the source of all strength and dignity. And so you can laugh at the times to come. There's an excellent commentary on the book of Proverbs. This is one of those um, where I would say, buy it. It would be good for you to have in your home. It's written by a man named John Kitchen, and I think that's cool because, you know, John Kitchen, Proverbs, I don't know, there's something very kitchen-y about Proverbs. But of this verse, he says, strength and dignity are the, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Listen to what he says. The future is not a fearful prospect to her. Indeed, she smiles at it. The word for smiles means to laugh. The future for the mocker is a frightful thing. A time when God will laugh at him in his calamity. But this woman has chosen her fears well. This woman has chosen her fears well. Let's choose our fears well. She does not fear the future, but has appropriately set her fear upon the living God. Thus, she is at peace with uncertainties. She has chosen her fears well. That's the aim of this series. 
Let us choose our fears well so that we may be at peace with the uncertainties of the future. You don't need to be afraid if, if you have been born again of imperishable seed. If you have been born again of what Peter describes as the imperishable seed, the Word of God incarnate, then you are, you are. I know it doesn't feel like it, but you really are anti-fragile. It doesn't mean that you're impervious to pain. It doesn't mean you won't lament greatly like the devout men in our text lamented the death of Stephen. It doesn't mean you won't get knocked down. You are, after all, carrying the treasure of Christ in fragile jars of clay. It's set up that way. It's set up for us to be jars of clay, carrying the power of Christ within, so that everyone may see that this surpassingly great power is from God and not from us. And what that means, as Paul illustrates in 2 Corinthians 4, is that you will, you will, when adversity comes, be hard-pressed on all sides. But you will not be crushed. You will be perplexed. But you will not stay in despair. You will be persecuted. But you will not be forsaken. You will be struck down. But you will not be destroyed. In all of this, nothing will separate you from the resurrection power love of Christ. That's my new term, power love. Like the, the love of Jesus is power love. It's, it's, it's not just affection. It's not just a, oh, I, I think I, I like that Chris guy. He's pretty cool. No, it's, it's, it's effectual power love. It does stuff. And what it does is it stands me up after I'm knocked down with lessons learned and faith built and more courage assembled. The power love of Jesus is the source of our anti-fragility. So nothing, nothing the Word of God says will separate you, can separate you from this power love. Remember those, uh, remember those inflatable things we used to punch as kids? What were those called? The, I love those things. I would break them because, you know, my punches are so powerful. But, uh, but you'd knock it over, and it would pop right back up. We'd knock it over, and it'd pop right back up. Those were great. And all of that happened because there was this deep weight at its base that constantly reset it over and over and over again. Well, that's not anti-fragility. That's just endurance. Imagine after my fifth punch on this bag thing, the thing grew arms and punched me back. <laughs> and that what was being produced with each one of these punches is something's happening inside this little balloon guy. And he's like, his arms pop out and he's swinging back. And that's why persecution is such a terrible idea. It's just such a terrible idea. Tribulation, distress, persecution, Nakedness, danger, sword, 
Paul says that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And all of this terminates in what Revelation chapter 12 describes, right? Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, and they have, or verse 11, they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. You see, this is the incredible reality of God's plan for the enemy of our souls. He, God, means to use our anti-fragility, the power inside of us, to overcome the enemy once and for all. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony. And by not loving our lives even to death. Listen. If persecution comes to us, it will hurt. But we will prove only through the power of Christ within us for the bazillionth time that persecution is a terribly bad idea because as the old saying goes, they tried to bury us. They didn't realize we were seeds. Let me pray. Gracious God, praise your holy name. Nothing of what we say today should be misconstrued as boasting in our own strength, but rather a deep, deep confidence in the strength that will meet us in our weakest moments. Lord, we pray that you would give us this confidence more than, than being aware of, although it's, it's helpful to be aware, sensitive to the change of times. Lord, we pray that you would be uh, cause us to be much more sensitive to the change that has worked in us through our redemption, through our salvation, so that we could say, greater is him who is in me than he who is in the world. These things we pray to our perfect and powerful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.